Alright, turn in your Bibles, please, to the letter of James. If you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it Poisonous Partiality. And as you know by now, if you're a guest and you, you won't know, we're actually in a series on James. If you're a part of our church, then you'll know that James is split into four sections, four sermons, and that he's really delivering his served these folk in Jerusalem. These guys are now part of the dispersion. They've been dispersed, and James is writing to them because he loves them and he wants to care for them and wants to help them. And so his first sermon goes from verse 1 through to verse 18 of chapter 1 where he talks about trials and Christian maturity. And then in sermon 2, he starts talking about true Christianity seen in its works. And that goes from chapter 119 through to chapter 2, verse 26. And his whole premise is, listen, exactly what we've got here. Faith, for it to be real, has to come out in our actions. It has to work. And so he starts off at the beginning by talking about the importance then of hearing God's word, of standing on God's word and allowing it to affect our lives and speak into our lives. He then talks to us about the importance of doing the word. Because it isn't going to work if we just come every week or we get up in the morning, we spend time with the Lord and we listen, but we don't do anything with it. It's like a guy going to the doctor saying, hey, I've got cancer. And the doctor giving him a prescription and him just him walking off. It's just bizarre. It's only when we take it, when we do it, that we're blessed. And then he really gives us, at the end of chapter 1, the crunch of where the whole book is going, helping us see that true Christianity is seen in its works. It's seen in its words, the way we speak, in our actions, the way we live, and indeed our hearts, that we need to keep ourselves away from the world. And this is what he then says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, talking to us about the poison of partiality. Here's what he says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Yet mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to your word, we realize, as John Calvin tells us, that we need to show it reverence just like we show you. Because this is your word. And so, Lord, as James seeks to pastor us this morning through this letter, would we understand that behind his words are your words? And, Lord, would you speak to us today? Each individual in the room, would we hear your voice? Would we know your nearness? Have your way amongst us by your grace, Lord. Amen. You know, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and one of my favorite stories in the Bible, is the book and story of Jonah. I mean, Jonah's just an amazing story, man. How many times do you interact with somebody anywhere in God's word that's been swallowed by a fish? You know, it's just an unusual story. There's just things about it that you're like, this is amazing. This is insane. This is intense. And the action in it is, is overwhelming. You know, when the waves are coming, it's thrown overboard and swallowed by this fish. And then he's crying out to God in the fish and the fish pukes him up. There's so many things going on that you're like, this is an incredible story. I wish it was a movie. It would be amazing. I'd go see it. Because it is just fast-paced and moving and and I remember when I studied it for the first time, ready to give it as a preaching series, I remember being shocked that the reason why Jonah didn't want to get a Nineveh is because he's a racist. I hadn't seen that before. I didn't realize that the whole problem for him, which is why he ran away from the Lord, why he didn't want to go, is not because he was particularly afraid, he just didn't like them. Because of the color of their skin and what they stood for, he didn't want to go them. He was amazed that he had received the grace of God, but he didn't want to be passing it on to these Ninevites. He was a racist. And when you actually realize that, it's an exhilarating moment because you're like, oh, the book now makes more sense. But it's also a difficult moment. And it's a difficult moment because I think for us as Christians, we can hear that he's a racist and then think, well, therefore, the book has nothing to do with me. Because I'm not. I don't mind people from other nations. I love and enjoy people from other nations. I'm not a racist like Jonah, so the book has nothing to do with me. And yet when you linger in the book and you spend time in the book and you cry out to God for grace in the book, what you realize is that if there is any kind of person that you'd struggle to reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live, then in that moment, we are just like Jonah. We're just the same. So what about the extended family member who you spend time with like twice a year at Christmas or Easter or whatever it be, and every time you sit with this family member, all they want to tell you about is how they're pro-choice and pro-gay marriage. And they just want to go on and on about it because they know you hate this. And so they just want to poke you in the side. Or what about the co-worker? That whenever you see them, they want to let you know that they're not just homosexual, they are full-on homosexual, and that you could just put up with it. In fact, I'm going to show you pictures from the weekend. And you, it causes you to be abrupt and want to stand against it, but they just want to shove it in your face all the more. What about the guy that's just moved in down your street, and it quickly becomes apparent that he's just got out of prison, and then the word on the street as you are considering reaching out to him, is he's only not just got out of prison, he's got out of prison for pedophilia. And so you cancel the cookies, 
He said, I ain't going down there. But why is he living on my street? Or what about the antagonist co-worker who knows you're a Christian, hates what you stand for, and loves then to ridicule you for your faith? There is a sweet enjoyment for them to throw it in your face and antagonize you whenever they can. See, the moment there is any kind of person that we'd struggle to reach out to because of the person they are or because of the way they live, then behold in that moment the Jonah in you. And it's when you realize that that the whole book comes alive because you realize God is speaking to me through this book. He's bringing things to light in my life. He wants to speak to me about the reasons why I struggle to reach out to a certain kind of person. Well, this book of James, and particularly this passage in so many ways, I think works just like that as well. Because in paper and headline, it would appear that it is all about economic partiality. This church is favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor. And as you come across that, even as you read it, I think on first glance, you can read it and just think, well, uh, that's not exactly my life. I don't mind. If you've got money, great, welcome. If you haven't got money, well, great, welcome. And yet I think we can make a massive mistake to think that it is just about economic partiality. Because it's actually about partiality. And James wants to speak to us about the poison of partiality. And so I have three points today. Number one, the picture of partiality. Number two, the inappropriateness of partiality. And then number three, the remedy to partiality. And I think if we pay attention to this word... And we realize this isn't just about economic partiality. I think God will encounter and speak to each and every one of us in the room, which is what we want. So point one, the picture of partiality, verses two through four. Let's read it again. Verse two. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, all the scholars say that the reason why James is bringing this up is because this was actually happening in the church. They're gathering And when people are coming in who are rich, they've got their fine clothing on, it is obvious that they are rich, they would have been in white gowns, they would have had their fingers all full of gold rings. That when that person's coming in, they're fawning over this person, oh, welcome, come sit with me, I'll find you a good seat, you can sit at the front so you can hear whatever's going on. But then somebody else who comes in and they're wearing shabby clothes, they're they're clearly the poor and it's like, oh, oh yeah, nice. Yeah, you can just sit at my feet or sit over there, whatever really, but welcome. That's the scene that he's talking about here. It's a church that is discriminating against the poor and fawning over the rich. All the rich people they want to be with. Oh, it's so good to see you. But the poor people, yeah, thanks for coming, but just sit over there out the way. It's disgraceful. It's discrimination. It is favoritism. It is partiality. And as you come across it, it doesn't take long to realize this is poisonous. This is totally wrong for God's people. And yet the truth is many churches have struggled with this over many centuries. 
You don't have to go back to the book of James to realize this can be a modern-day problem as well. For example, 1739, John Wesley, a man that many of you would be aware of. John Wesley was actually part of the Church of England in the UK. But he felt in 1739 that the church at that point, the Church of England had become elitist and it had become inhospitable to the poor. The poor people in the UK felt like they had no place to go to church. They just didn't fit in. And so John Wesley started to bring this to the church's attention. They really pushed back on him. So he went outside and he started to preach on graves. He started to preach in fields because he wanted to reach the common folk. He wanted to take the gospel out to people who were poor that really felt they had no place to give themselves within the Church of England at the time. And John Wesley, as we all know, he he preached to thousands of people. Sometimes he was preaching up to 30,000 people without one of these. Only Alex can do that, you know. So John Wesley would preach to thousands of people and there were famous stories, beautiful stories of times when he would wait for all the coal miners to come out the mines and as they come out, he would gather them around in their hundreds and he would preach the gospel to them. And it was clear that this gospel was having an impact on their lives because they called it the two white trails. These coal miners, big burly guys with their blackened faces from the coal would have two white lines running from their eyes to their mouth because they're shedding tears as they give their life to Christ. Poor people, people that didn't have much, people that felt I couldn't go to church because that's too elitist and inhospitable. So John Wesley went to them. And that's how the denomination of Methodism began. He knew that as these people got saved, he could not bring them to his church because it was too inhospitable for poor people. So he started a whole new denomination called Methodism. Well... What goes around sometimes comes around. And a hundred years later, the Methodists had become the elitists. That denomination had grown to the point where they became inhospitable to the poor people. They had no place to go. And so there was a man called William Booth, a Methodist, who observed this in the early 1800s. And Richard Collier, in his history of William Booth and the Salvation Army, describes Booth's experience this way gives us a window into one of the days in the early 1800s. This is what he says. He says, Those who made it part of the Broad Street congregation never forgot that electric Sunday in 1846. The heating gas jets dancing on the whitewashed walls. The minister, Reverend Samuel Drum, seated comfortably on his red plush throne. And a concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. The chapel's outer door then suddenly came open, engulfing a white scarf of fog. In its wake came a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women, wilting nervously under the stony stares of the mill managers, shopkeepers and their well-dressed wives. In their rear, afire with zeal, marched willful will booth cannily blocking the efforts of the more reluctant to turn back. To his dismay, Reverend Drum saw that young Booth was, absolute, was actually ushering his charges, none of whose clothes would have raised five shillings in his own pawn shop, into the very best seats, pewholders' seats, facing the pulpit, whose occupants usually pile the collection plate with silver. This was unprecedented. 
For the poor, if they came to chapel, they entered by another door to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions behind a partition which screened them from the pulpit. Here, though the service was audible, they could not see, nor could they be seen. Yet oblivious to the mounting atmosphere, William Booth joined full-throatedly in the service. Even he later admitted, hoping this devotion to duty might rate special commendation. Yet all too soon he learned the unpalatable truth. Since Wesley's day, Methodism had become respectable. William Booth was actually reprimanded after that particular event. And he's a true Englishman. He just kept doing it anyway. He kept trying to bring these poor guys to church all the time. And eventually both William and his wife Catherine were removed. They're actually excommunicated from the Methodist church. And so he started then 14 years later the Salvation Army. And he made the salvation all about reaching the poor with the gospel. See, we don't have to go back to the book of James to find modern-day situations where the rich have been favoritized and the poor extradited. It's been happening for hundreds of years. And yet here is our challenge, I think, this morning. As James pulls up a seat alongside us this morning, I think it's so easy to be blinded by this issue of economic partiality that we all too quickly assume then that surely this text hasn't got anything to do with me. It's encouraging, it's nice, we'll look out for people that might favor the rich and discriminate against the poor, but we don't do that. I mean, if you've, unless you've missed, I don't have a red plush seat that I sit on in the corner. We don't have pews that we pay for. We don't have a screen signaling that, oh, you're poor, thanks for coming, you're the other side of the screen because it's the respectable people. We don't have that. And yet one of the big mistakes we can make, I think, is to think then that this text doesn't speak to us. But actually I think it probably does. Here's why. If there is any kind of person that you and I show favoritism to because of the person they are, or some other external in their lives, then behold in that moment the partiality in you. The moment you show favoritism to somebody because of the person they are or because of their status, or some other unnecessary external in their lives, then you're just the same. You're doing exactly the same thing. And so a new family visits the church. They come through, you you meet them at the front, your life group happens to be on that week, and you notice instantaneously that they are the same nationality as you. And so you embrace them, you talk to them passionately. Oh, have you ever been to this place? Have you ever been to that place? Very quickly, you're like, you should come for lunch. It's so good to have you here. And then two minutes later, somebody else comes in also visiting, but they're a different nationality to you, and you say, oh, hi, thanks for coming. In you go. What is that? It's exactly the same thing. I'm favoring you because I understand you. You're from my country. But you, oh, thanks for coming. I'm sure there'll be people in there that'll talk to you and stuff. It's exactly the same thing. A new couple join your life group. And you start chatting to them. You hear about their story. And you quickly become aware. You like sports like I do. 
You like music like I do. Man, I just felt like we clicked. We love to say that in Christianity. We just clicked. Well, no one knows what that means, but we clicked. I just felt like we clicked. We have the same hobbies. We have the same interests. We like the same stuff. Oh, man, we're getting like a house on fire. They've only been here three weeks. I feel like I've known them all my life. And then another couple joins and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just a bit different, a bit different. Yeah, they, they think a bit different to me. And yeah, I, I just didn't feel like we really clicked. And so, had them over for dinner? Oh, no, not really, no, no. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be others that will. It's just the same. Are you on welcoming? And this guy comes in and he has got an I love Coca-Cola t-shirt on. And you think, he is my homeboy. <laughs> and he walks in and you're just like, welcome. Because straight away you think, you know, i just really going to relate to this guy. I can tell I love Coca-Cola. Well, I love Coca-Cola. So he's probably going to like Maccas as well. He's probably going to have a whole philosophy of life that is just like mine. He's probably going to be an athlete on the inside, but a Coca-Cola drinker on the outside. He's a cool guy. And then somebody else walks in alongside with a Save the Whale t-shirt on. And you think, oh, oh, well, welcome. And you start to assume, you know, they probably hug trees as well. And they probably have views on health. They probably have views on vaccinations that would be different to mine. So Coca-Cola guy, welcome. Save the way. Oh, hi. <laughs> and others of you will do it in reverse. You'll see the Coca-Cola guy and think, oh my, oh, poison, <laughs> poison, irresponsible father, save the whale, welcome, they love the planet. Is that not partiality as well? Is that not exactly the same thing? Or a new guy comes to your youth group and he's just got it going on. He's got the shoes, he's got the shirt, he's got the hair. He's a guy I need to get to know. And yet this new girl turns up to youth and, well, she's not got the shoes. The hair, I have no idea what's going on. She just doesn't really fit. So I want to be hanging out with you because you're cool, but, but you, yeah, yeah, just, um, I don't know, sit there, welcome. Or you're driving into church and on the way in, You notice four really large guys walking in, and you could have sworn that they looked like four men from the New Zealand rugby team. And so you park your car with speed because you think, could it be? And then you walk in and you realize it is four men from the New Zealand rugby team in my church. This happened in 1999 in Christchurch, my old church, Wales. It was the Rugby World Cup. These guys had been for a haircut from one of the young girls in the church. And she said, oh, you should come to church. And they said, all right. So they rocked up to Christchurch, 500 people there. And these four guys, everybody wanted a piece of them. Everybody wanted their autograph. You know, as soon as they walk in, I, I've never seen a church come alive like it in my life. You should sit with me. Come and sit with me. This is my family. What are you doing for lunch? There was popularity going on, there was passion going on, because these four guys are from the New Zealand rugby team. Everybody wanted to say hello, everybody wanted a picture with them, everybody wanted to take them for lunch. It quickly became apparent they had no car, they had about 10 offers within 10 seconds of, I'll take you, I'll take you, where do you want to go? 
And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it for two reasons. I'll never forget it because they were actually in the church. And I'll never forget it because of the conviction of the Lord I felt on the way home. Because our church had come alive that day and welcomed visitors like we should always welcome visitors. And yet these four New Zealand guys were welcomed like heroes. And I'm sure there would have been other visitors walking into Christchurch that same week that maybe didn't even get said hello to. Isn't that the same? My friends, the moment we find ourselves with a, showing somebody favoritism because of the person they are or their status or some other external in their lives, behold the partiality then in us. And it's then that James chapter 2 comes alive to us because you realize he's talking to you. The picture of partiality may look different, but partiality is something I think we can all struggle with to different degrees at different times. And so point two, the inappropriateness of partiality. The inappropriateness of its presence from verse 5 through to verse 13a. And he introduces this section in verse 4 when he says the following. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? His whole premise is, listen, if you're showing partiality to people, then this is evil thoughts, this is evil reasoning, this, this is wrong. And Hughes says it this way in his commentary. He says, James detests such thinking of partiality. In fact, he sees this matter of partiality as a test of real faith. Favoritism to James is an indication of a heart that at best is in need of spiritual help and at worst is a heart without grace. My, what big words. This favoritism is at best the heart of someone in need of spiritual help and at worst a heart without grace. And he gives reasons then, three reasons as to why it is so appropriate that there be partiality in a church. Three reasons why it should not even be named amongst us. The first reason then is this. Number one is that it's a sin before a holy God. The first reason why partiality is wrong, favoritism is wrong, is because it's sinful before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look with me at verse 8 where he carries it on. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law... According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, the royal law that he's talking about there is the law that Jesus talks about in Matthew 22. There's a legal expert in Matthew 22 that's confronting Jesus saying, listen, there's a lot of laws, so what's the greatest What's the most important laws? Because if we can just dumb it down a bit, we might be able to do it a bit easier. So what's the most important commandment, the most important law that we need to obey? Well, in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, this is what Jesus says. He says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
And so according to James, he wants to help us see, listen, partiality is wrong. Partiality is sinful. Because in doing it, you're breaking the royal law. You're not loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind, your strength. And moreover, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Because you would never want it to be treated partially like that. And yet you're willing to do it to them. Because of their finances, because of their nationality, because of their interests, because of their hobbies, whatever it be, you're willing to do it to them. Peter Davids in his commentary says, The expression you are committing sin, verse 8, is stark and clear in its accusatory force. For James views such an action as deliberate and ugly. It is not merely an excusable lack of courtesy, but a scandalous breach of God's love. And so it is. When we show partiality to people of favoritism, it isn't just a, oh, oops, yeah, I should have, yeah, probably should have done better. No, it is deliberate and it is scandalous before the love of God. What James does then in verses 10 and 11 is he tries to help us see the seriousness of it because he knows that the church is going to be sitting there going, really? Favoritism? (laughs) Is it that big of a deal? And he wants to tell them, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a really big deal. It says this in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, what James wants to help them see then, and indeed us, is that, listen, we can't just look at partiality and say, but it's not a big deal, right? What he wants to help to see is the law is like a seamless garment. And so you rip it in one place and it's bust. And therefore you are a transgressor before the Lord. You're a sinner before the Lord. It's like a car engine. When it breaks in one place, it's bust. And so it is when we commit sin whether it be murder or adultery or partiality, it busts the whole thing. It all breaks, and therefore you are a transgressor before the Lord, even through mere partiality. And in verse 12 then, soberingly, he says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He takes us to that point to that last day when you and I are going to stand alone and give an account for our words and our actions and he's soberly trying to entreat them listen you may think partiality is no big deal but you need to understand that one day you will stand before the holy king of Israel and give an account for all of your actions and all your words and my friends we need to be sobered by that even as Christians I think sometimes we can be quick to say well there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus True. But the Bible also says that you will give an account for every word and deed you do, whether good or bad. That's a sobering thought. You are going to give an account, as am I. And yes, you will receive the commendation from the Lord, and yes, you will be ushered into heaven, and yes, there is therefore now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you will still soberly give an account. Just when you think it couldn't get more sober, 
then says this in verse 13a. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. James concludes with a sobering and terrifying reality. Because what he's saying is this. Your partiality, your favoritism, it is a sin before the Lord. It's a sin that you are given account for. And it's a sin that if you haven't truly repented of and truly sought to change in, then you've shown no mercy to the people you're judging. And on that day then, when you stand before the Lord, he will show no mercy to you. See, what he's saying is if you show favoritism to people, if you show partiality to people and you don't even care about that, it's no big deal towards you, then that's evidence that you never knew the Lord at all, that he's not your king, he's not your savior, and you're not saved. Jesus himself says it in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's a verse that we don't hear enough of. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. (laughs) That is a sobering and terrifying reality. Jesus himself is saying, listen, there's going to be many on that last day that are going to come up to me and say, but but Lord, you know, I, I, I prophesied in your name and I did miracles in your name. I did a ton of stuff. And maybe they did. Maybe God in his grace worked through them for the good of the people. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe this is just more lies, but they're trying anything they can do to say, but I think I knew you. I heard about you in Sunday school, and so I did some stuff, I think. Yet the sobering reality is in that moment, Jesus will look back at them and say, no, away from me, I never knew you. You never put your faith in me as, as, my, as your saviour. You never bowed the knee to me as the king. You just played the church game. You just played the religion game. But you never knew me. And accordingly, I never knew you. See, James, the younger brother of Jesus, is picking up on that. And in effect, he's almost saying, listen, church, test yourself in this. If you never show mercy to people, if you ongoingly show partiality and favoritism to some and not others, if you ongoingly discriminate against some and you don't even feel bad about it, you're not repentant about it, there's no change in that, then that's most likely evidence that saving faith was never real in your heart. And on that day, the Lord will say, away from me, I never knew you. Is that not sobering to you? It's been sobering to me all week. And James isn't saying, therefore, okay, think about somebody else. Think about somebody else. Oh, you know what? In light of what you're saying, Dave, somebody else probably isn't saved. No, he's saying, test yourself. Think about yourself. Have you taken Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King? Both are necessary for saving faith. The first reason then why partiality should have no place amongst us is because it's a sin. 
And there's another reason. Number two, it's not the example of the Lord. It's not only a sin, it's not the example of God himself. It says this in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Just to be clear, James isn't saying here then that God just saves the poor. Some liberal theologians would say that's the case. So give away everything you've got. You've got to be poor. And if you can become poor, then God will save you. That's not what he's saying. I know many poor people that don't know Jesus. I know many rich people that really do. You don't have to be economically poor to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not what James is saying. But what James is saying is, listen, church, even those you discriminate against, namely the poor, God in his grace doesn't discriminate against them at all. He loves them and shows them mercy. Indeed, he saves them because he doesn't look at the outward. He looks at the inward. He doesn't look at people's clothing and popularity. He looks at their heart. And when he looks at people's heart, he sees a heart and a person who's been made in the very image of God himself. And in his grace then for all mankind... Man and woman, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, by his grace for all of mankind, made in the image of God, he sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And now for all of us, as we stand near the cross, it's level ground. There's no partiality. There's no favoritism. We're all one in Christ. My friends, aren't you glad that that's the way God views you? Aren't you glad that God didn't say, listen, I'm open to people coming to heaven. You've got to raise $500 million first. Or you've just got to be an athlete. I mean, that would have got me in, but most people. (laughs) Or you've just got to be super smart, and there's going to be exams, and if you get in, great. Aren't you glad that God didn't do that? God is impartial because he doesn't look at the outward. He looks at the inward. He looks at people's hearts made in his very image. Paul says it this way in Romans 10, verses 11 through 13. He says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that not good news? Neither Jew nor Greek, doesn't matter. Slave or free, doesn't matter. Man or woman, doesn't matter. Super smart or not so much, doesn't matter. Athlete or not. Millionaire or not, it does not matter. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is a call to you for salvation. God doesn't look down on you and go, oh, you know, given what you've done in your life, given your intelligence, given your lack of money, whatever it be, eh, probably not. But you can sit at my feet if you want. God says, listen, you put your faith in me as Lord and, my Lord and Savior, then welcome home. We are cut off from God because, because in history past, we were partial. We chose creation and rejected the creator. But God in his grace, in impartiality, said, I'm sending my son for you all. So whosoever will, whatever tribe, language, and nation, 
Whatever you're about, whatever you've done, whosoever will put their faith in me as Lord and Savior, then I will save you. That's the good news of the gospel. God in his grace is not partial. He is impartial. And my friends, for us then as Christians, it's our job to be imitators of him, isn't it? We're called to be like him. And so accordingly, we cannot show favoritism to some because of who they are or their status or because of some external means. We have to look at hearts that were made in the image of God himself and show no favoritism then to anybody. To James then, it is important that we not show partiality. It's important that we understand it is totally inappropriate in a church because it's sinful and because it's not the example of the Lord. And then he gives a third reason, and I love it, and I just think it shows James's humanity and love for these folk, because here's what he says. The third reason why it's irrational and inappropriate to be partial in church is because, number three, it is stupid. <laughs> I love the way he thinks. He goes from the heights of it is sinful, it is wrong, it's not the example of the Lord, to and it is stupid. What are you doing? He says this in verse 6 and 7. I love it. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? You've got to remember these guys are being persecuted. Most of the church is incredibly poor themselves. And so when the rich people are coming in, they're like, oh, welcome. It's good to see you. Come and sit with me because they think there's something to gain out of that. And James is saying, are you stupid? Is it not the rich people who are abusing you? Is it not the rich people who are taking advantage of you? And is it not the poor people that you align yourself with because you are poor? (laughs) I love James. He just goes straight for the jugular. It's sinful. It's not the example of the Lord. It's stupid. What are you doing? But the more I've thought about it this week, I've realized, you know, isn't all sin stupid? It promises us something that we think we need or we want, but we never get it. I look back on my life through sinful things, even big sinful things that I've done, and you look back and think, yeah, that was wrong. It was not the example of the Lord, and it was stupid. It just caused me harm, and people around me harm. What was I doing? Sin has a habit of taking us further than we ever wanted to go and keeping us longer than we ever wanted to stay. And James, I think, is trying to protect this church from that, going, just stop it. What are you doing? This will bring you harm and those around you harm. It's not only sinful. It's not any example of the Lord. It's stupid. John Calvin says it this way. He says, For there is no reason for men zealously to pay respect to their own executioners and at the same time to hurt men who are on their side. To fawn over one's oppressors is strangely irrational. And so it is. To fawn over one's oppressors is strangely irrational, as is all sin. And so it is inappropriate to be partial and show favoritism to people because it is sinful. It's not the example of the Lord and it is irrational and stupid. So what's the remedy? Finally and very briefly in closing, the remedy to partiality. Look at verse 1. My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What's the remedy? Don't do it. I love the way he shares it. And my brothers, you're my family. You're, you're the people that I care about the most. He, he's been their pastor for years. And yet through the persecution, they've been dispersed to all these places around. But he still treasures them in, their, in his heart. So he's appealed to them, listen, family, I, I love you. I'm for you. And I want to ensure that your lives are all about, as he says at the end of that verse, I want to ensure that your lives are all about the Lord of glory that your lives are all about the audience of one, that your lives are all about not pointing to each other, but pointing to him and being like him. And so, my brothers, for the Lord of glory, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's sinful. And it's not the example of the Lord. And it's stupid. It will do you harm. So, my brothers, for the Lord of glory, Show no partiality to people. You know, maybe you're here today and you're experiencing the conviction of the Lord because in reality, you have been shown partiality. Maybe you're experiencing conviction because as you think about it, you start to realize, but I do have favorites. And I do push people to the side. Maybe because of their nationality. There's people that I feel I click with and there's people that you think, yeah, I just don't quite get you. Maybe because of their clothing, or maybe because of their interests, or health ideals, or finances, or popularity, or position. The list goes on. But the moment we show favoritism to somebody because of who they are, or some other external means, then behold the partiality in us. Maybe you're experiencing conviction in this moment because in reality you have been shown partiality. Well, the last four words in this text now speak to you. This is what James says. For mercy triumphs over judgment. James has just been talking about how we can, in our partial ways, judge people inappropriately and show them no mercy. But now he shows us God himself whose mercy triumphs over judgment. How in his grace, he is slow to anger, but abounding in love and abounding in grace and abounding in mercy, as demonstrated in particularly through the cross. The place where mercy triumphed over judgment for all times. A judgment that we deserved. But as he hangs there on the cross as our sin bearer, he made it possible for you and I to receive mercy. Mercy triumphed over judgment at Calvary. And mercy was always going to triumph over judgment. Because that's who God is. A God of grace. A God of love. A God of generosity. A God of mercy and grace. Listen, when you think of God... If those words don't come into your mind, generous, lavish, loving, gracious, merciful, if those words don't come into your mind, then I don't think you really know God as you should. Because that's who he is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He is slow to anger, but abounding in love. 
My friends, if at this moment then you are experiencing the conviction of the Lord, two things I want to encourage you to do. Number one, run to him and ask him for forgiveness. Run to him and ask him to forgive you for your partiality. And he will forgive you because he is a merciful, gracious God. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Even when we realize and are stopped in our tracks, that this is me. When we run to the Lord and say, Lord, I confess my sin, would you forgive me? He runs towards you and says, I absolutely will. Because I'm slow to anger but abounding in love and grace and mercy toward you. I will wash you clean again. So my friends, if you are partial, then run to the cross and lift your hands and say, Lord, would you forgive me? And he will. And then number two, as you stand before him, forgiven, ask him then for grace for change. Ask him to help you. Ask him as you venture back into the world and you know your temptations to partiality. Say, Lord, I know I'm forgiven, but would you help me through the gift of the Holy Spirit to become more like you? And he'll answer that one favorably too. Because he loves us as children. And so often we don't have because we don't ask. So cry out to him for forgiveness. And cry out to him for grace, for change, for mercy, triumphs over judgment. And in and through it all then, would we truly live for the Lord of glory. Amen. It's all about him. And so would all glory go to him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that within this word is all that we need. And so, Lord, where partiality takes place in our lives, Lord, would you forgive us for that partiality? Would you forgive us for times when we look on at one person and show them favor and shun another because of who they are or some external means? Lord, thank you that you have not done that to us. Thank you that at Calvary there is no slave or free or man or woman or Jew or Greek. But you have impartially saved us all. Lord, would we delight then in that truth and model that truth for everybody who comes in through these doors. In Jesus' name, amen.